If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey. Yay, we actually have connected today. Uh, Last week, we were in the mountains, and you know how they say, when you go to the mountains, you go to leave technology behind? We certainly did that. (laughs) (laughs) I was just wondering if technology left us, because either way, we apologize. We were not able to connect, which was too bad, because we were in the mountains, the mountains, close enough for, not like my my Alaskan mountains, but close enough for Tennessee and North Carolina. Uh, But it was a beautiful setting. It was incredible, and it was nice and cool. It wasn't burning hot like it is here. Oh, gosh. So anyway, but we do have you today. Welcome to the show. We got a lot of stuff to go over today. And as always, we do require participation. So you don't get to just watch or listen for free. You get to, you have to chime in, send us questions so we have material for our next shows. But today we got a lot to cover. We're going to talk about a new evolution of uh, muscles in dogs' eyes so that they can better communicate with us. We're going to talk about dog aggression to children. Uh, are there breeds that are more prone to bite your child than other breeds? And then we're also going to go over some questions that have been asked, uh, questions like, if I send my dog to a board and train program, will it develop a, an abandonment type syndrome? Will it no longer bond with me? Will I lose what I've worked hard for? And I like my dog to give my dog treats and training, but the problem with that is my dog tries to take my hand off when I do it. And then there's another question about muzzles. Uh, should I muzzle my reactive dog? Uh, so we're going to be covering all of those questions and many many more and any questions that you send in. I have Kira here with me in the studio. She's monitoring your, your questions, send them in email, send them to us on Facebook and we'll get them. Have Joshua in here. I don't know what he's doing. Uh, I just pretend I do things. You just pretend. So you got your laptop over there. Just pretend. Okay. Well, let's get right into this study. And the title of the study was posted on the Science Daily, but it was actually performed by a comparative psychologist by the name of Dr. Julian Kaminsky, and she's with the University of Portsmouth, and she and her team have determined that dogs have developed more muscles around their eyes, located particularly near the inner eyebrow, the inner eyelid. Um, So that being said, what does that mean? And she says that they can, it has enabled dogs to raise their eyes, their eyebrows higher, thus enlarging their eyes. So now they really have puppy eyes. Mm-hmm. They can really turn it on. So what does that mean for communication? She says this is pretty unique from an evolutionary standpoint. And I, I agree. Uh, the, even though dogs have been domesticated from wolves, we believe somewhere between 30 and 40,000 years. And I know that sounds like a long time, but not in evolution. No, no. Yeah. no, that is like one granule of sand in an hourglass. So this was quick, very, very quick. And now they have this in, in their study, they compared dogs and wolves and found that 
the dogs had it much more than a wolf did. In fact, they were saying that in a two-minute study in which they allowed dogs and wolves to observe them, in two minutes, dogs raised their inner eyebrows more and at a higher intensity than wolves. Now, one thing you need to know when you pay attention to that, these were not wild wolves. Wild wolves don't stick around and stare at humans where humans are close enough to them to measure the diameter of their eyes. Is that a, that just happens to be a little half inch larger than it usually is? <laughs> no, they don't do that. So these were captivated wolves and they, some of them had been in captivation since birth and so on and so forth. So there's a little bit of difference there, but the fact that they even bothered to stare back uh, for two minutes was I think that's pretty as much astounding as the actual study itself. But the biggest point on this is that dogs have indeed developed new muscles around their eyes, enabling their eyes to be larger and their eyebrows to be raised. So what does that mean? How did that come about? And what does it mean for your typical dog owner? Now, before we answer those questions and discuss those, one point is this. Of course, it had to be us. There's one breed in which this evolution hasn't occurred. That's really cool, too. It's in the Siberian Husky. And we can see it. We can totally see the difference between Takani and the other dogs. Yeah. The other dogs, you look at them and they're going, (gasps) they have the big eyes and you're going, oh, oh, my goodness, and all that sort of stuff. But Takani, our Siberian Husky. Dead stare. Stare right through you. Dead (laughs) stare. No emotion here. Yeah, you cannot read emotion. He might as well just be a hitman. (laughs) Or he could play poker because you're never going to know if he's bluffing or not. I don't think he's smart enough to do that. (laughs) He could have Captain help him. Yeah, yeah, Captain can sit next to him and feed him a card or two. But uh, that being said, that's for sure. You look at these Siberian Huskies and they don't have that. And you know what Dave has even learned how to do? One of our little rats. He can twitch his nose as well as brace his eyebrow. Okay, so that'll be the next study that'll come out. (laughs) All right, so those of you who happen to be live and not just listen on the radio, there's a picture of one of our Morkies named Dave, a.k.a. Chicken, a.k.a. Pigpen. And there you go. There's those big eyes. So, Joshua, you asked an interesting question before the show. You asked Kirk. Did you cause that to happen or did evolution cause that <laughs> right, to happen? Right. Yeah. I think well, it's a combination, isn't it? Yeah. Well, domestication, part of it is dogs, you don't want to own a wolf. I'm just going to put that out there right now. Those of you who fantasize about owning a pure wolf, no, you don't. You really don't. I have a lot of colleagues who can tell you, uh, like Dr. Donald Pache, he can tell you all day long, you don't want to own a real wolf wolf. Uh, But when we brought wolves into our dwellings, and we know that occurred at some point, well, which ones did you think were brought in? The ones who had that hitman stare. So you've got this offspring, whether you happen to be an ancient man with your ancient offspring, or you're just now in the mythologic period, whatever it is. So therefore, you have dogs are wolves, and you're looking at them, and which one are you going to invite into your house? The one that talks you into it. (laughs) Yes, and because they don't have language, what did they use? Their facial expression. There you go. You bet. If you've got children, you're going to invite an animal to be near your children that gives a look that says, 
I'm not going to eat them. And there we go. And now all of a sudden, without language, dogs have always used signals. They come in a variety of visual signals, number one. Then it's going to come in auditory signals, growl, whine, so on and so forth. It's going to come in signals in which they touch you with their paws or with their bodies or they bite you. Dogs communicate to humans all the time, but visual is number one. Always has been, hence why they depend upon visual to facilitate the greater part of their learning. So now they're using it with us to influence our behavior. And that's what it's all about. Uh, they even, there's a, we call it feigned helplessness. He has mastered that. Indeed. Absolutely. Because it's only there to influence your behavior. Now, a lot of times, unfortunately, people look at it and they say, well, it's because he's trying to tell me he loves me. Well, if that makes you a happy dog owner and you're not having to worry about the dog eating your children or your sofa or anything of that sort, go for it. But from a scientific level, they're simply trying to influence your behavior. Look at it with children. You're mad at them. You're going, oh, I'm going to kill them. That's it. He didn't meet. And then all of a sudden, they raise those eyebrows and the eyes become larger. And you're going, all right. One more day. Yep. I'll let you live. You just bought yourself one more day. Amen. <laughs> so well, we the use dogs it. that are still alive today that were successful in influencing our behavior that now have those new muscles that help them influence our behavior. Oh, yeah. And yes. it's everything from don't touch me to please do touch me right. uh, to please do feed me Pick to me do this and so on and so forth. So it is very interesting that this has occurred at the rate in which it does, but that's all it's there for. It's just to influence our behavior. So that being said, there are times in which oblige. Yeah. Okay. I forgot. It's time to have dinner. There's other times where we need to look past that and say, nice try. That was a really good try. Mm. However, I still need you to lay down and stay. I need you to be quiet and so on and so forth. So as long as we understand it for what it is, I think that we're all capable as dog owners of, for the most part, making the right decision. Don't fall for it. Just because your dog gives you these big eyes and the eyebrows and all this pateomorphism that we, that we morphed into dogs to keep them like children, to keep them like young adolescent wolves and never let them grow to full maturity. That is something that can be actually harmful. Mm -hmm. You can think that your dog is stressed when it's actually not. You can think that your dog is fearful when it's actually not. They simply learned that if I give this look, then again, it works. And they used it for various reasons, cause and effect. For some dogs, it achieves a different result than it does for other dogs. Mm. Uh, and if you keep that in your head and you go, okay, I see what you're doing. You're trying to influence my behavior. Sometimes oblige, sometimes don't, but don't for sure ever assume that it means that the animal is suffering in some way. Mm. And by doing that, you, you really draw out the very black and white ways for the dog to communicate. And then your communication only becomes better. So if you, you know, kind of oblige in those situations in which the dog's letting you know, Hey, it's time to eat or, or different ways, then the dog becomes more clear on appropriate ways and in, in 
ways to communicate where if they're just kind of what I call woodpecking, where they just kind of throw out these behaviors all the time and hope to influence your behavior, they're not really clear on what that behavior is actually influencing you to do. They just hope it gets something. Yeah, they're frustrated. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, again, you go to a vending machine and you're dying of thirst and you put in your last 50 cents and you hit soda that you want. They don't have it. And now you peck at the other one and you keep pecking, hoping that you get something. You would never drink that particular diet drink or whatever it is or the grape drink. Right. <laughs> but you're going to drink it today because that's all they offer. Uh, dogs are like that. You bet. Cause and effect. They learn through their own self-discovery. They learn through experimenting with people. And if they get success, that's the one thing you can take to the bank. Mm. If I achieve a benefit for this behavior, I will repeat it. Mm. It will happen. The captain does that when he, he'll go through his entire repertoire of tricks and what he knows if he thinks that we are going to give him something. Yeah. You know, and that's also known as, the, as an extinction burst. And that's the same thing. You, you have your last 50 cents. You start pecking on this vending machine, trying to get some sort of drink. And at the end of the day, nothing comes out and you hit the return my money back button or switch. That doesn't happen. Now you get frustrated and start beating on the machine. Uh, I've, I've seen that. I've seen people beat on it, cuss at it, you name it. And people have died because the machine fell on them afterwards. Yeah. And this is why, this is the number one reason why a lot of people will have a somewhat older dog that is habituated to a certain type of behavior. And when they come to a trainer, the trainer gives them instructions on how to handle it. And the behavior actually gets worse for a period of time. And, and they, well, apparently whatever the trainer told me isn't working because now it's worse. Yeah. If they don't, if they got success with it in the past, they will try that yeah. behavior. Now, if that fails them, dependent upon what it, their objective is. If they're really, really hungry, for example, oh, don't think for a second they're not going to move on to plan B. Mm -hmm. That's being a smart wolf. Mm -hmm. If you pounce on a mouse using technique A and it fails you over and over again, hunger will drive you to modify your technique to technique B and then C and D and so on and so forth until you finally either A, achieve success or you perish. Way to go, animal. Way to go. <laughs> but one thing that we do understand is that how it affects humans, number one, and again, why I tell you, be on guard. Check these emotions. This is, again, we've discussed on the radio before. This is how therapy dogs work. They, these large eyes and that expression is scientifically known to elicit caring and attachment from us. It immediately starts a chemical reaction in your brain with oxytocin and so on and so forth, neuropeptides that are associated with attachment and bonding. And therefore, all of a sudden, the animal that's supposed to be giving you therapy, uh, helping you out, you suddenly think, oh, I need to help it. I need to help it, which is a wonderful thing because now all of a sudden, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about dog. Welcome to healing. And, and that's a great thing, but that's what those eyes do and hence why we have become so attached to dogs. So attached. We want to care, especially the carers of the world. <laughs> you know, they want to care. They, it's just so ingrained with your human nature to take care of the offspring, to care of the helpless. It's part of it. So therefore, it does work and good for them as a species to figure that out. So that's the biggest thing on that, guys, on that little report there. You can look it up yourself. And we actually 
have a link to this report on our website, tamingthewild.com. Just simply go to the radio page and there it is. And you can read about it yourself. Uh, another report that came out that I want to talk about is, you know, we all know this. All dogs are capable of biting children. I don't care what kind of dog it is. They are all capable of biting children. But some breeds are more capable, both from a physical standpoint, causing more damage, in other words, and also more likely. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. And I know a lot of people get into an uproar over it, but don't because you did it. The numbers are out there, period. Oh, they're, I mean, they're there. You can't argue with the numbers of the attacks of the type of dog. You, no. I mean, so there's no you reason can't. to get uproared. Well, some people do. Uh, and I get they want to say, well, my dog is one of those dogs and my dog wouldn't do that. And I get that. I understand that. There is no particular breed out there in the world that if you own one, it's guaranteed it's going to bite somebody. You just own something that has more of a propensity to bite something than something else. Some were bred to raise their paw when they see a bird, mm -hmm. not bite humans or bite other animals. Some were made to retrieve. Some were made to herd other animals into pens. Now they do bite yep. <laughs> to motivate. Pain motivates. Go that way, ladies, please. Uh, but there are some breeds that we nurtured the very thing that we're afraid of now. We wanted it and good for you because you got it. But here's the problem. When it happens to a child, a little bitty tiny human of tiny stature, tiny little muscles, tiny little bones, they die from it mm -hmm. or they become severely injured. But anyway, this report is also found in the Science News and Science Daily. And it was produced by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And the purpose of the study, the title of it is study identifies dog breeds, physical traits that pose highest risk of biting children. And the entire purpose of this study was to be able to provide current parents and future parents of the ability to decide whether or not they want to own a certain type of breed for the safety of their children. That's what it's for. But it's great in one hand when you read the study, not so in the other. I think the point that it was trying to make, they missed. They didn't because it's right here in the report, researchers found pit bulls and mixed breed dogs have the highest risk of biting and cause the most damage per bite. So I'll stop right there and then we'll continue. All dogs are mixed breed dogs. What, is a mi what mixed breed are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's a little vague. Um, so therefore, we kind of know that. So now it goes on a little bit further. The same goes for dogs with wide and short heads weighing between 66 and 100 pounds. Thank you for clarifying that. Because I was starting to get a little worried that every mixed breed dog we had to have a lot of concern for. Uh, but again, by simply giving that description, you're now starting to narrow down the field. You're starting to get an idea. Here we go. Mastiffs, boxers, Rottweilers, pit bulls. And I know this. Uh, in the book that I wrote, The Hammer, Why Dogs Attack Us and How to Prevent It, uh, I did years of research uh, preparing to write that book. 
And in there, I state 74% of all fatalities are caused by the pit bull. And again, it's a fact. Like it or love it, leave it, I don't care. It's a fact. And it is something that you need to consider when you have young children. It is a dog that mankind bred to be aggressive. It is powerful and it comes hard and fast. It doesn't even know a middle lane. It's all the way off or all the way on. And that's what you have to do when you originally originally morphed by mankind to do the job called bull baiting. Mm -hmm. Run out, grab a bull. Uh, Have anyone seen bulls care? We just saw one just recently up in the mountains. That, that sucker yeah. was big. That thing was bigger than our SUV. There's yes. no time for warning signs, showing teeth, growls. There's no time for that. That's why with pit bull attacks, I mean, they are just one minute, they're just completely fine. And then the next minute, it's on. They were bred to not show signals. It's kill or be killed, period. Yeah. And when you're trying to drag an animal to the ground or to hold it still by the front end, the deadly <laughs> end of the animal, the one with the sharp hoofs, the, the one with horns, the one with the skull, the as thick as four inch concrete. That's the end that you want to grab. Wolves figured out a long time ago. Someone came back to camp to the other wolves at some point and said, you know, I just discovered something really cool here. That's going to be very beneficial. Biting an elk in the butt is a whole lot safer than biting the front end. The front end ran over me like a freight train and stomped me into the mud and the antlers raked me and now peeled off half my hide. But the back end, as long as you avoid that one little kick, and again, the elk has a difficult time kicking when it's running. So smart animals they are. But we took that same smart animal, we convinced it that go to the front of the bull. (laughs) And we did it. And they go and grab that darn thing by the nose and Good Lord, you grab a bull by the nose and you just inherited a hurricane with four hoofs that weighs anywhere from 800 to up to darn near a ton, some of these bulls. So we took that and now I want to have that around my three-year-old. So again, I've trained thousands of pit bulls. I own one. You own one. Yeah, I own a pit bull. And you own a small child. I do. I do. You do- You got a small child, right? So you, <laughs> I say you own one. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the dog world, baby. We own our kids. Heck, we rehomed one of ours just recently to a university. We did. We yeah, did. you can even. One to go. Well, I look at it until he's eighteen. I do own him. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gonna own him after that to go off to college? Trust me. There's a leash called a credit card. It's yeah. wonderful for telling your daughter heal. Yeah, I mean it, heal. So that's uh, yeah. <clears throat> so again. We've owned pit bulls. We've trained them. There are some that are absolutely adorable. Yeah. And I guarantee they wouldn't hurt a flea unless they were pressed into it. But here's the deal. Should they be pressed into it? Should little Tommy with the new lightsaber press them into it? It all comes back to yeah. how the child or how the dog interpret, interprets the child. I mean, that whether your child was about to smack it over the head or not, that does not matter. And there's so many times and cases in which that it wasn't provoked. It was not yeah. provoked. And that's the biggest issue. Yep. When it, from zero to hundred miles an hour with full power, again, what do you want to be bitten by? Cause you can be bitten by anything. Which one's going to cause the most damage. Now, the one thing that I love about this particular study is they have a list of tips that they recommend 
when you own children and dogs, especially dogs that weigh between 60 and 100 pounds that are mixed breed or pit bulls with short, blocky heads and so on and so forth. And I think these are all fantastic. Yeah, they are uh, really good. One yeah. of the most impressive one is animals learn through mimicry. Okay, now I'm going to point something out to you. You may not like this. But when you got a two-year-old, it's kind of like an animal. I'm just going to be there from a brain standpoint. It's going to learn like a dog, act like a dog in a lot of ways. Therefore, dog see, dog do. And it says here, children imitate their parents. Be a model for your child and avoid any confrontational or risky interactions that might trigger a fear or fear aggressive response if the child were to mimic it. Well said. Yeah. I just this weekend, I had a, a puppy that we picked up off the streets and we were keeping it in our house until we were able to, to get it to a shelter. Um, and while it was there, I had to do some crate training because the puppy was driving us nuts. And so I was telling the dog, it's enough, quiet. And within just a couple of days of me doing, or a day of me doing that, my son is yelling from the back of the house when that puppy would make a noise, enough. Just, I mean, you know, so they do that a young child will mimic you every step of the way. So you do have to be very cautious about how you. Amen. That is the number one way that young mammals learn mimicry, mimicry. How else? What else do they have? They don't go to school. They only have an iPad, computer, go on the internet. No, they mimic because a vision facilitates the greater part of my learning because I don't have language and so on and so forth. Uh, so guys definitely pay attention to that. You grab your dog to pull it off of the sofa. Don't think for a second that little Johnny who's two years old may, may not attempt that, but a good chance that he will. And when he does the results that he'll receive from doing that are going to be far different. Uh, and plus dogs, you know, we, I've written, I wrote about that too in the hammer. They, anytime it comes to a confrontation, they're always running that entire situation through a cost versus benefit analysis. And the dog may allow big Brian to, hey, hey, get off the sofa. No problem. Because I'm going, okay, I don't want to take that on. So I will just give way. But then again, little Johnny, oh, I can take that all day, every day. And the dog doesn't respond to little Johnny the way it does to big Brian, so on and so forth. Yeah. We have clients all the time that I talk to and they are sending their dogs in for training and they say, my number one goal is for the dog to listen to the children as well. And I always have to tell them, you know, depending on how old your child is, how big your child is and what kind of heart your child has, that could happen. It could not happen. Most likely is not going to happen. Young oh, they'll listen to them all day. It's they just may not respond. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But they'll hear them all day long. Uh, the other thing it says that most bites to children occur from the family dog when the dog is resting and the child approaches. Um, that's one area where I have a little bit of a conflict with uh, because in my research and also in my personal experience, professional experience, competitive aggression is the number one reason for aggression on the planet Earth among humans and dogs and wolves competition. You're born into a world in which the resources are limited. I get it that a lot of Americans don't get that. They got a piece of plastic that seems to have an endless supply of the ability to provide them with what they want. But I'm telling you, from an instinctual standpoint, you're born in a world that is governed by the law of limited resources. And therefore, 
competition, competitive aggression, my food, my toy, my spot on the sofa, not the startle effect, uh, but either or, not the split dog hairs. It, they can both, that's good advice. Let a sleeping dog lie. Let it lie. So that's a really good one. Um, and I will tell you another thing too. 54% of the fatalities that occur in this country occur to children under the age of nine. And it's something to kind of keep in the back of your head as well. And then they go on to say other things. Uh, again, uh, one of the uh, teach children to let resting dogs lie. I just covered that. Many bites to children occur even when an adult is in a room. And that's really important as well. So many adults think, well, I was there. And if I'm there, the dog's not going to do anything. Oh, no. No. A threat is a threat. This little kid comes at me with a wiffle bat or whatever or grabs my ear. I'm going to deal with it with or without your permission. That's just how they do it. And it goes on and on, guys. I'm not going to read them all. I definitely encourage you. We have a link to this study as well on our website. Go read it for yourself. If you have any questions about it, reach out to us. All right. So that kind of covers two of the main topics we want to cover today. Uh, now we're going to hop into some questions because we've gotten a lot of questions lately. So Kara, shoot me, baby. Okay. So this question has been waiting for a couple of weeks. Chris asks, I want to sign my dog up for a two-week board and train program, but I'm worried it will break his bond with me and cause an adoption type mentality. Are my concerns valid? No. Next question. No, I'm no, just teasing. You give it more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing with you, Chris. Uh, no, sir, don't be worried. Let's, let's just break this thing down a little bit so that we all understand what's going on here. That is a concern that many people have. I answer that question. I would say nine out of 10 of our board and trained clients ask that question. Is my dog going to forget who I am? We get it for just boarding clients. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I was just talking to a client yesterday about another client. So do know we do talk about you, <laughs> <laughs> whether it be on the radio show, whether it be in something else. But that particular client sent her daughter to a one month camp but yet didn't want to send her dog to a two-week board and train. <laughs> so immediately that kind of like, hey, can I talk to your daughter? <laughs> what gives here? <laughs> I'll send you off for a month, but I'm not sending my dog. Uh, you know, I think it's more the fear of the unknown, and that's what it is, just a lack of education. Dogs thrive on the familiar, and so do we. We thrive on it. Don't kid yourself. You may be an adventurer. I like to call myself an adventurer. But if I go to some particular restaurants, don't even show me the menu. I know I, why I went there, what I'm going to have, period. Uh, so therefore, there are times in which we are adventurous and other times we're not. But we all thrive on the familiar. And dogs do so more than anything else. And part of that is I'm familiar with my dog. And I don't. And I feel like a special bond. And we're worried that that special bond can quite possibly transfer to someone else. And that's one of the big issues that we have. I don't want to lose that. It's unique to me and my dog, and I don't want to share it. 
And so beyond the, I'm worried about my dog, will he be okay? Will he eat well? Will he be given an opportunity to go potty? So on and so forth. Much deeper than that is the worry that something will happen between this perfect little existence that the two of you have. And I'm here to tell you, Chris, not happening. Not happening. You will, how, what do we tell them, Kira? The dog you send in is the dog. You will receive back. Good or bad. Yes. The only thing is, if it was bad, it'd be more manageable. Mm-hmm. But is if you had a dog who, for instance, really had a, an aversion to men, was more comfortable with women, in two weeks, guess what? You now have a dog that has an aversion to men, but it will stay while they walk right by them. Yeah. Those kind of things don't change. There's not enough time and there's not enough reason for the dog to change. The dog will undergo stress just like you will. Because if you ask this question, you will undergo stress when your dog leaves. Because you'll worry. You go, is it going to be okay? Will he remember me? They're way smarter than that. It takes dogs, some dogs, over a year to completely forget you. But they will. And think about this. What about service dogs? What about C&I dog? Were you there for the dogs? Years of training? No. When I was in the military, hey, there's canine hero. And his handler decides he wants to get out of the military. So do they retire canine hero who's only four years old? No. Canine hero gets a new handler and the dog adapts to that. When I was a police canine officer, my dog Yager, he was put on this planet to do one thing, track bad guys, find bad stuff, and bite bad people. He wasn't put here to be my pet. And therefore, when I decided... I had learned enough from being a police canine officer, and I was going to now go do other things. I donated him to the Dalton, Georgia Sheriff's Department with a deputy named Mark Buckner. And I went to visit him about eight months later, just to check on him, make sure everything's going well. He bit me. (laughs) So he didn't remember me. And he did his job perfectly. And he bit me. So don't worry about that. That took eight months. That wasn't two weeks. They're not going to forget you in just two weeks' time. Well, you guys battle that in the turnover lessons, don't you? That's what I was going to say. One of our biggest concerns is, I always tell my clients, you know, on my best day, the dog comes in here, doesn't even look your way and doesn't, doesn't even notice that you're even sitting there. My worst day, they see you, they pee all over themselves, they lose their mind, you know, they, that type of thing. So yeah. our best day is that the dog doesn't even look at you, but, you know, we, we battle that every single day. And in all honesty, which one occurs most often? <laughs> the, the one where they lose their mind. Yeah, yeah. there you go. So don't worry about those. Uh, their dog's not going to forget you. And I even wrote in my book, Embracing the Wild in Your Dog, we all get the dog that we deserve or that belongs to us. It's very unique. Uh, Even in our own household with our cattle dog, Captain, he hangs out with Kira all day long, loves Kira, hangs out with her. Some days he comes with me, some days he stays home with her. But I'm going to be honest with you. When I come home, what's your name, Kira? 
forgotten. Skip. <laughs> Her name is Skip. Right then and there. Everywhere I go, I go up the stairs, he goes up the stairs. I go downstairs, he goes downstairs. I go outside, he goes outside. Everywhere I go. But the same thing with the Morkies that we have, Dave and Poe. I can pet them. Kara can go somewhere. I'm home with them all day long. I'm petting them. I'm doing all this great stuff. I'm trying to win them over. I'm going, now, aren't I a little bit better than Kara? <laughs> Did she ever give you this much cheese before, you know, than, than me? And as soon as Kara walks in the door, I'm skipping. Yeah, you're forgotten. It's going to happen. Uh, so let it go. Let it go. It's, it's the benefit of having a trained dog. From both of you, from both standpoints, the dog and yours, it's well worth the cost. There's not going to be that much of a cost. So let it go. Thousands of dogs every year go through board and train programs, or they simply board while their owners go on vacation. And there's not a prevailing nationwide issue with dogs now going through abandonment issues or saying goodbye to their owners. I don't like you anymore because you sent me to that place. So let it go. Let's move on to the next one. Okay. So Brian asks, Bear paces in his crate a lot in the mornings before we let him out. Is he anxious or just ready to get the day started? It happens every day. Pacing, pacing, pacing. How big is the crate? <laughs> okay. Maybe he's just turning around. Okay. <laughs> get a smaller crate. Problem over. Can't pace. I'm crammed in here. Done. Easy, easy solution for this. Uh, again, they thrive on the familiar. So again, what happens in the afternoon about four o'clock? Woodpecker, peck, oh peck, 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 peck. There Captain we go. Drive you crazy. They dinner thrive time, on the time. familiar. They know the routines. Your dog will know your routine. If you get a dog, even a brand new dog, inside of two weeks, they've got your routine down. I mean, all the way down. And if there's any variance in that, you will start to get a response from the animal. They know, no doubt, Brian, your dog knows what occurs at that time of the day. And now I'm getting ready. I'm going to hop out of that kennel. I am ready to go. And it doesn't really mean that I have to go to the bathroom in a real bad way. It just means I'm ready. And also for most people out there, just to kind of, kind of related to this question and, and the answer to it is, when you're a mammal that doesn't have a clock to tell you what time it is, you live your life flowing through a rhythm of time, a biorhythm. And I'm here to tell you that the ancestor they come from to this day still hunts dawn and dusk. So a lot of times when humans are just going, oh, I need my coffee. I need something. Your dog is going, can you get your butt up out of that bed now? I need to go. It's time to go hunting. Time to go do something. Time to go do something right now. And we see a lot of that. That happens. And at night, the same thing. You've worked a hard day. You come home. You just want to relax, prop your feet up, watch a little TV. And here's your dog. Can we play fetch? That's when they do the bug out. Yeah, exactly. The, the bug out. And the bug yeah. out is what we just simply call a fond little name for. They just get this scoop boogie, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta go. And all of a sudden, they're racing around your living room a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, welcome to an animal who was born from a wolf. And its clock is saying, it's not time to watch TV. It's time to go do something. Go for a walk, chase the ball, play tug of war, and not when we want to. So their clocks are different than our clocks. Mm -hmm. And I have no concern over that. Um, it's just an animal telling you I'm ready to go. So what if he wants to sleep later? How does he remedy this? Well, there's, there's more than a few ways. One, 
you can always put the dog somewhere where you're not aware of what's going on like that. Mm. You really can't. Uh, like the old saying goes, in outer space, no one can hear you scream. Well, if the dog's in a safe kennel, you know it's safe. There's no way you can really harm yourself or anything. Then you can put the kennel sometimes if you have a big enough house where no big deal. And the neat thing about that is, remember, dogs only repeat behaviors they have success with. So if I spin around, spin around, spin around, pace, 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 spin around, and no human lets me out right when I'm doing that, well, I'll just quit wasting energy. And also keep in mind from what we were speaking about earlier, it might get worse if he's had success with it for a period of time. <laughs> before it gets better. Yeah, before yeah. it gets yeah. better. So if you can't do that, you're living in a small house or a small apartment or anything of that sort, and you're going, Brian, the dog has to be in my bedroom. It has to be there where I can sit. Then that's where I'm going to train to stop it. And that's where like a good down comes into handy. Hey, you over there, down. There you go. And a lot of people don't understand that. A command should happen and can happen under any condition in which you train it. So now if you've never trained your dog to lay down in its kennel, you'll need to do that first. First of all, teach it down, a great down, one that it responds immediately to the signal down. Then do it in its kennel. And of course, you know, if, if it's big enough for you to walk in there and everything, it's called a room. <laughs> but uh, teach your dog to lie down. That's a great thing to do. Some people teach the command settle. Mm -hmm. And settle means just exactly that. Slow down, knock it off. And then you don't even have to get fancy. You can just say, knock it off. Mm -hmm. The biggest issue is, you have to stereotype signals, and I won't get into that really deep so we can answer other questions, but you can't choose knock it off one day, settle the next, down the third day. Whatever you choose to do, stereotype it. Then be prepared, be prepared to raise the signal if the lower signal doesn't work. And that may take something like a long line being threaded through the kennel to the dog. Uh, remote training collars are awesome for that. But again, you have to do this training outside the kennel so the dog doesn't think, wow, I just felt something inside of here that I've never felt before, and now I don't want to be inside of here again. So make sure you follow the proper protocol for remote collar training. But all of those should help. That'd be my number one thing. If I can remove the dog, game over. I always believe in Keep it simple, stupid rule. Always have, pick battles big enough to matter, small enough to win. Move the dog somewhere else. The behavior will go away. If not, okay, now I'm going to get a little bit more proactive. All right. I hope that helps, Brian. Okay. So this one is from Mary Ellen, and she says, a trainer recently suggested I purchase a Baskerville muzzle for my reactive dog. He said using the muzzle would cause my dog to become less reactive. Is this good advice? Okay, two points. First of all, that's a, oh, it's so much more complex than what that question mm -hmm. asked. But so let me just cover two general points. Remember, dogs only repeat what they have success with. Okay, so if you put a muzzle on a dog that prevents the dog from biting under a particular condition, if it's repeated over and over again, then the dog will be a force to develop adaptive behaviors under that condition that exclude biting. So maybe like a trip to the vet, the groomer, whatever. Get it. But I also need you to keep in mind this. Those things, no matter how yellow they are, were put in there to do two things 
food acquisition, which you're feeding your dogs. We don't, we can go ahead and eliminate that. Then also to save myself and control my other pack members. That's why they're there. Now, if your dog is a reactive dog, then that means it is be its stress response is being mobilized in the presence of possibly other dogs, other people, or a combination thereof. Now, when you're the reason why that's occurring is because your dog believes those to be a threat. It's the only reason why we have a stress response. It was developed by nature to deal with only one thing, and that's an acute physical crisis. However, we humans live long enough, well enough, and we're smart enough to cause our bodies to go up into a stressful uproar just by a thought, through anticipation. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I have to go to the dentist tomorrow. (laughs) Now your body is going through this uproar. The sympathetic nervous system and so on and so forth is all activated. Heart rate goes up. Glucose is being secreted in your body, proteins, fats, so on and so forth. Just kind of keep in mind that the stress response is stereo. uh, It's a uh, stereotype response. It's generalized. It doesn't ever change. It doesn't care whether you're hot, whether you're cold, whether you're under a threat, whether you're suffering some, from some sort of psychological stress, it doesn't matter. The way the body responds is always the same. So therefore, if you have a re- reactive dog, its body is reacting as though there's some sort of acute physical crisis. And now, as a dog, when you encounter that, whether it be real or not real, again, it's up to the dog. Now, guess what just happened? You took away the greatest tool I was ever given to get me out of this situation. So therefore, I have found that just like the leash, what tool causes more dog reactivity in the whole wide world? The leash, because it takes away the option of flight. I can't run. I now must deal with this. So now imagine I have my dog on a leash and in a muzzle. So again, before I was just on a leash, at least I still have my mouth. But now you just took away my mouth. How do you think the dog feels now? Helpless. There you go. And guess what happens to that stress response? Way up. Way, way, way up. So I understand muzzles. I owned the vet hospital and there were many dogs who came in that we had to muzzle. But this is short term. And that's what the stress response is for. Short term term. That's why when an animal is under it or a human, that's why tissue in growth, tissue repair and growth is immediately inhibited. Storage of more energy is inhibited. Reproduction is inhibited. Your immunity is inhibited. Your immune system. Why spend money, time, and energy on long-term projects when you might not be around for the long term? So if you're the elk and there's a wolf two feet behind you, you're not thinking about growing bigger at the moment. It's definitely not a clever time to to decide that now would be great for reproduction. No, it's short term. And we just have to keep that in our heads. So there's time to muzzle the dog if it's short term. It's a particular event, one event. I'm going to the vet once a year. I'm going to the groomer once per month. But to use a muzzle constantly 
or just routinely, meaning several days a week under the same situations, you will cause more damage doing that. Get control of your dog to start with. And if it's that reactive, it may need chemicals. Again, that is coming up. We're just preparing for those episodes now, and you'll want to listen to those. Uh, But again, me, A, anytime you deal with a threat situation, you have the choice, either avoid it, and if you can't avoid it, then you have to intervene. And short of chemicals that can be used to keep the stress response under control and not to have it roaring through the body, then you have to intervene by, hey, dog, I love you, but you can't bite that human being over there. So sit instead, things of that sort. So there you go. So in other words, long story short, I'm not a fan for them for other than anything that is very short in duration and does not happen very often. Gotcha. Okay. You ready for the next one? I am. So my dog tries to take my hand off whenever I give her a treat during training. How do I teach her to take just the treat? This is from Andrew. And not the hand. (laughs) Don't bite the hand that feeds you a treat. Uh, Well, a couple things come to mind with that. That's very common. Uh, Who you know? um, You have a lot of company out there. Again, it goes very deep. I'm going to keep it simple. But if you just think about the anatomy of the dog's face, the muzzle. Those who have longer muzzles have better ability to bite your hand and snatch it than those with a blunt face. But the biggest thing I want to talk about here is, is it possible with your particular dog to use something other than a treat to motivate it? Because anytime we're dealing with a human or a dog, we always have to take into account whenever we're trying to modify its behavior, three main areas, attention, motivation, cognition. Do I have their attention? What can I do to motivate them to do the behavior? How can I influence their behavior? And do they get it? Have I done this enough that they can get it? So I'm always going to ask, is there anything that we can do differently? Can we use just a pet? Can we just say, well done? What about a ball? You know, teach it to drop it when you say so. But if that can't be done, if you are determined that, hey, Brian, I've tried everything. They all could care less about a pet doesn't like a ball. Oh gosh, how many dogs have we had like that? Just, they, they just didn't care. All they cared about it was the treat. Then as far as handing off the treat, there's several things you can do there. But the first thing I'm going to do is from a physical standpoint, how do I give the treat to the dog that takes away their ability to bite me? And one of the things I recommend that you do is place the treat. In other words, bring your fingers together and look at the palm of your hand. Place the treat underneath your thumb. Curl your thumb over to, to, uh, to the inside position of your hand. And you can hold the treat right there. So it's between your thumb. It's at the base of all your fingers in your palm. And those of you that are watching live, I'm showing it to you right now. And then offer it to the dog. Now, that would be like someone smacking or smashing a Reese's cup onto a plate and then holding the plate right up to your face. You can't bite that plate. (laughs) You're going to have to use those front little teeth, those little incisor teeth, and just kind of work it off of there. Same thing. Let them learn. They can't bite you then. If they try to, they get no success, and they'll have to work that treat out from underneath your thumb. 
We teach that from the minute go in puppy classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Just so you start right and right. So that's one thing I would highly recommend that you do. Another one is simply no. You try and bite my hand. No. Now there's going to be a correction for that. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do that, I'm going to do that outside of the training that I'm doing. For example, if I'm working on sit and you try to chomp my hand off, that's not a good time to now say no. Because of the timing involved, the animal could confuse, oh, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to form this position? What the heck's going on here? Right. So therefore, do it outside of training. You're just sitting around the house, grab a couple of treats, have a leash on your dog, connect it to a collar, offer the treat the way I said, but the dog still tries to bite. No. Then offer it again. No. The dog tries to bite. Offer it again. Now the dog doesn't try to bite. It nibbles it out of your hand. Well done. You could cue it, couldn't you? I mean, give it like a easy or gentle or something like oh, that. Oh, you certainly can. You certainly can. Uh, but they will learn from cause and effect. Mm-hmm. I try technique A, chomping the hand. And that doesn't get me a treat. In fact, what that gets me is a correction. But when I try technique B and gently pull the treat from the hand or nibble the treat out of the hand, that gets me the treat. Dog will, will immediately drop technique A and switch to technique B. Technique B. Okay, we only have about two minutes. So if I answer another question, I got to answer one quickly. Okay. Well, I think this is a good one. So Will has a puppy who is learning everything really well, except not jumping. This pup jumps on everyone and he's tried everything to break that. And his mom suggested kneeing her in the chest when she jumps. No. Is that good? No, uh, that's a bad technique to use for many reasons. Number one, you're striking the most vulnerable area on your dog's body with one of the strongest muscles that you have, one that was not designed to detect minute changes in temperature or pressure or anything of that sort. So therefore, just from that standpoint alone, no, you can create injury to your dog. And again, at our vet hospital, we treated many dogs with broken ribs, and their sternum was cracked and so on and so forth because someone violently need them. Number two, think about it. As soon as you lift one leg, you biped just became a creature on one leg. Now, any movement from the dog that catches you off guard and next thing you know, you're the one doing the off by lying down, not the dog. So that can hurt you. I'd rather use my hands. I have control over those. Dog jumps, say off, and make sure it's stereotype. Don't ever change your commands up off and push the dog off. How hard? Well, you have to find out. Start easy. Dog jumps on you again. Note to yourself. Uh, I need to dial up a little bit <laughs> and keep doing this. But the biggest thing is when they land on the ground, don't reward right then. You only reward a dog for not jumping on you at all. Do not give them the treat the second they land on the ground. Otherwise, you just became a vending machine. I jump on humans. They push me off. But you know what? I get a treat. So I hope that helps. I can get that a little bit deeper next time. But guys, thanks for tuning in. I'm glad we're able to have the show today. And next week, we'll be going over, do dogs mirror their owner's stress and their emotions? We'll be covering that, a whole bunch of other questions. See you then. Have a great week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild and Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it. 